Father, would you be with us this morning? Thanks for the opportunity to gather, to sit under your word and the power of your spirit, God. Would you speak to us today? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to be soft and transformed into the likeness of your son? Would you remind us of who we are in you? We ask that you would do it. We pray it in your name. Amen. So I want to start by offering a scenario. It's, it's two different options. And what I want to ask you is what option um, generates the most emotional response from you? So option one is you get $50. Somebody gives you $50, right? You're excited about that. Hopefully your emotions are excited about that. Uh, the other is you lose $50. You have $50, it gets taken away in some way. What emotion are you most strongest in getting excited or getting upset at losing the money or gaining the money? Who says gaining the money is, I'm, I'm more excited about that? And who says losing, losing the money, I'm more upset about that? Yeah, I see you in the back, Stephen, who handles our money. Um, so Danny Kahneman, who's an economist, and he actually won in 2002, he won the Nobel Prize for his work. Uh, he did this exact study with multiple people. He said, okay, what elicits more of an emotional response of you if you gain $50 or you lose $50? The finding of his research is that uh, the magnitude of emotional response is significantly larger for those imagining what it would be like to lose the money. So in other words, the negativity of losing something is far greater than the goodness of gaining something. My wife and I worked with athletes for over 15 years, and we definitely saw this play out in athletes' lives. I don't know if you've been around athletes, and some athletes, like, they just love to win, but most athletes hate losing more than they love winning. They cannot stand to lose. And I don't know if you've experienced this. I know for me, like, sometimes if I walk into somebody's home or I walk into a space, isn't it way easier for you to notice if it's dirty than if it's clean? You walk into a space and it's clean, and you kind of just don't even notice it. You don't even think about it. But if you walk into a space and it's dirty, you go, ugh. Right? Or my wife and I speak uh, with marriage conferences, with family life, and in the process of that, we get feedback. Everybody at the conference fills out specific to the speakers, like how they experience them. And man, God does some amazing things at those weekends, and we get comments like, God used your words to change our marriage, to rescue us. And we're like, oh, that's nice. And we read multiple of them, but then the one comment that's like, oh, you said that, and it kind of really bothered me, right? We could have 100 positive comments, but then what are we thinking of when we walk away? We're thinking of that one negative comment, like, ah. <laughs> Do you ever experience that, right? Uh, a psychologist would, would call this negativity bias. That's how they would phrase what I'm describing to you. And psychology.com says this about this. It says, not only do negative events and experiences imprint more quickly, but they also linger longer than positive ones, according to researcher Randy Larson, who's a PhD. He says, this stickiness known as negativity bias, goes in other words, for a multitude of reasons, including biology and chemistry, we're more likely to register an insult or negative event then we are to take in a compliment or recall details of a happy event. You guys resonate with this at all? And so the question for us even this morning is going like that idea of negativity bias, how does that play in 
to our relationship with God. When you personally think of your relationship with God, those that are following Jesus and, and walking with him, do you think about all the positive things that God has done for you and in you and through you, or do you focus more on the things that feel negative, like God has somehow not answered your prayer, he's somehow not come through for you? Because this is exactly what's happening in our story with God's people in Israel. We've been walking through the series called Servant King, and we're really looking at chapters 40 through 55, 15 chapters in the book of Isaiah, and it's really all one running thought. So this this idea that this God, the one true God, he's the one that restores his people, he's the one that rescues his people. And the context, if you're not familiar with where we're finding ourselves in the story, is that God's people have been disciplined. They have been put uh, out of their land. They've been taken out of Jerusalem. Their temple has has been turned into rubble, which is the the representation of God's presence. And they're taken to Babylon. And God actually is doing this intentionally as a discipline move. He's putting his people in time out. He's saying, you're not obeying, you're not obeying, you're not obeying. I'm going to do something out of love to help you learn obedience. But in the midst of that, the people are looking around and going like, This doesn't seem to make sense. It feels like God has left me. And where we pick up in chapter 40, God comes in to the scene and says, okay, the timeout is over. Your punishment is over. I'm actually going to send somebody to rescue you from Babylon, from your circumstances. Not only that, I'm going to send an ultimate rescuer in this servant king. And so in these 15 chapters, Isaiah 40 through 55, it's all one running thought, again, that the true God will restore his people. But most scholars think you can break down those 15 chapters into two sections. The first section, which we just came out of, Isaiah 40 through 48, is this idea of this one true God is powerful enough to rescue his people. He is powerful enough to restore his people, and he's going to do it. These idols that you chase, that you continue to worship, they are going to fail you and fail you and fail you, but I will never fail you, and I am going to rescue you from your physical captivity in Babylon. I'm going to use somebody that doesn't even know me called King Cyrus to come in and to rescue you. King Cyrus was the king of Persia, and that's exactly what happens. So that's the first chunk of this large section But God's people think that's the rescue, the only rescue they need. The second section is what we're jumping into today. Chapters 49 through 55 is saying like, you know what? You think your problem is that you're in Babylon. (laughs) But actually it's a way deeper, it's a way richer rescue because your problem is not that you're just in Babylon with your circumstances. Your problem is actually your heart. right? Because God's people, again, kind of have this shallow perspective of rescue. His people think, man, if we change our location, if we change our circumstances, then we're going to be good. And God's going, no, you actually need a change of your heart. And so I'm going to send the servant king. I don't know how you guys have watched those old Western movies, right? Uh, when a cowboy uh, comes in because there's, there's uh, abuse of power, it's usually a small town, and the people are just kind of underfoot of this one person or this group of people, and they can't fight against them, and that abuse of power has just been terrible in their city, and their town, their little town, and then all of a sudden, somebody rides in with a white hat, right, to save the day, and they defeat the enemy, and everybody is happy. 
God's people at this time are going like, okay, our enemy is our circumstances. Our enemy is Babylon. When, when the servant rides in and rescues us and, and gives us back to Jerusalem, we're going to be good. We're going to be happy. We're going to follow the Lord again. And God's going, actually, that person that's going to come in, that Messiah, that servant king, he's not just going to rescue you from your circumstances. He's going to rescue you from your heart because your heart is sinful and you need a deeper rescue than you even realize. And so as we step into the second half of 49 through 55 of Isaiah, we're going to see this language of a coming Messiah, a servant king, to help us understand there's a deeper version of rescue that God offers to his people. So let's jump in. If you have a Bible and it's not already open on your phone or a physical copy, uh, open it to Isaiah 49. And this is always helpful in the midst of, man, this is old language, this is poetry, this is prophecy in Isaiah, and it's hard sometimes for us to understand it. And so we really need to read people and understand people and help each other that have studied this book, because what happens is there's a shift in language in chapter 49. In chapter 49, the first six verses, the servant is speaking about himself. And so if we're just reading that, and there's a, you're going like, wait, what's happening here? And so we need to get cultural understanding and uh, a context for the literature we're in all the time in the Bible to help us make sense of it. So we're going to hear from the servant describing himself, and this is one of the many servant songs that we'll continue to see, pointing ultimately to the coming of Jesus. This is Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 6. Let's read it together. It says, listen to me, O coastland. The idea of coastlands means every nation. It's kind of a metaphor for that. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel, whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain and spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. Verse 5, and now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength, he says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preser uh, preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. As we look at those verses and we think of the person of Jesus that is yet to come, uh, Basically, what God is saying, even if you look at verse 1 and you look at verse 5, he talks about the, the Lord called me from the womb. And for us to understand that Jesus is not God's plan B. It's not like God created the world and all of a sudden Adam and Eve uh, sinned and they failed. And so God's going, oh, well, I guess I'm going to have to send a Savior. Like God knew from the very beginning that we were going to rebel he knew from the very beginning he's going to send Jesus to be our ultimate rescuer. And so the text is pointing to that as the servant is describing himself. And even in verse 2, you made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand. He hid me. You made me a polished arrow, the quiver. He hid 
me away. This idea that God knew from the very beginning Jesus was going to come to be our redeemer, to our rescuer, but he's holding him back for a certain time. He's holding him back for the right time to send him. And this is what Isaiah is pointing to. And even the idea that this savior, this servant king, is going to be able to rescue from close with a sword, and he's going to be able to rescue from afar with a bow. That Jesus, when he comes, he will be able to rescue us at the depths of our soul. In verses 3 through 6, we see that, man, this servant is not just going to come to uh, make it right with God's people again, the nation of Israel, Jacob. He's going to do that, but he's going to do something bigger. He's going to do something for the nations. You're a light to the nations. The end of verse 6, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth again. We sometimes think God's rescue, man, it's so shallow. Like even God's people are going, it's... God's going to rescue us through the servant, and God's going, actually, I'm going to rescue the nations through this servant. In the midst of it, we keep reading um, 7 through 12. It talks about this rescue and this restoration for God's people, for the nation of Israel at the time. And then verse 13 speaks to our response, what we should have as a response to this rescue, and it says this, sing for joy. O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. What the prophet is saying is, listen, God's going to rescue you, and your response ought to be singing. It should be singing for joy for what God has done for you, that he's comforted you, that he's coming to take care of you as you are afflicted. And even as we think of Jesus and what he's done for us now, that's why we sing in our response time. We should be singing what's true, what God has done for us. We're training and we're rehearsing, as Stephen just said, the true story of the world that God has done something in us and through us, and that should cause us to sing shouts of joy. But often, again, because of our ideas or our negativity bias when we think of God, we don't always do that, right? And that's what gets articulated in the next verse, verse 14. God is saying to his people, Isaiah is saying to his people through God, like, you should shout for joy for what God has done for you, what he is going to do for you. But then they say this in verse 14. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My God has forgotten me. That idea in the original language, forsaken, is this idea of being left. So God's people are going like, actually, God has left us and God has forgotten us. Why do his people feel that way? Again, putting ourselves in the situation of God's people, they're going like, God, like we got captured from these people that are not our people. We get driven out of our homeland. We're around all these idols. We don't have a king. We don't have a temple. We're going like, God, you, you must have forgotten. They're looking at all their situations and going like, Clearly, God, you've left us. Clearly, God, you have forgotten about us. This is how it feels to us. Amen. even though God has rescued us, doesn't it feel that way sometimes? Man, doesn't it feel like you're looking at your circumstances and all you can see is your circumstances? And as you look at your circumstances, you're going like, God clearly isn't in this. 
Because when you get connected with Jesus, when you get connected, his spirit comes in you, he drops the veils to your eyes, you realize your sin, and for some of us, man, we get connected with God for the first time because of Jesus, and we feel this closeness, and we feel this deep in our soul, and we go, that's what it feels like to be connected with God. And then your life goes on and certain circumstances begin to happen and you don't feel that way. You feel like, God, if you're in control and you're all powerful and you love me, how are you letting this happen? Could be a situation that's an all of a sudden situation. Maybe you lose somebody all of a sudden and it changes the whole trajectory of your life and you go, God, like, I, I feel like you've forgotten me. I feel like you've left me. Or maybe it's a situation that's not sudden, but it's a situation that may, you just keep praying for this and you feel like it's a desire from the Lord. You keep praying for this to happen and you're praying for this to happen and it just feels like your prayers aren't going past the ceiling because you're not seeing any difference in your circumstances and you're going, God, have you forgotten me? God, have you left me? Because you would be doing something. And that's how God's people are feeling. Often, that's how we feel. If we're honest with ourselves, we're going like, I don't know, God, maybe you left. Maybe you've forgotten me because I'm pretty frustrated at what's going on right now. This is how God's people are feeling. This is how we often feel. Listen to the prophet's response to God's people feeling left and forgotten. Verse 15, he says, can a woman forget her nursing child that she have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will never, or I will not forget you. Verse 16, behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. My walls are continually before me. So Isaiah uses this metaphor, maybe one of the most powerful connections between a mother and their child, and goes like, listen, will a nursing child forget her child needs milk? And I remember when we first had our kids a long time ago, and I remember thinking, man, my wife has some type of super power because I'll forget, you know? Like, when our kid is crying and our kid needs milk, like, there was nothing that my wife wouldn't have done to go to meet the needs of her baby. To go to meet the needs, to go like, listen, I know you're confused, you're crying. Like, again, put yourself in the infant's situation. All of a sudden, you wake up and you're hungry or you're wet or whatever, and you start crying and you feel like, the, the parent's not here, they've left me, I don't know what to do. And so you keep crying until what? The mom or dad walks in and takes the, the, the child and picks them up and takes care of them. And God is saying, like some, some moms don't do that. They actually neglect their child, but I will never, I'll never forget you. Like, that's helpful for us to be reminded of, especially for us that go like, God, have you forgotten? Like, God, why am I in this situation? Why are you letting this happen? You've forgotten about me. You've forsaken me. And God goes, no, I'll never forget you. I'll never forget you. Not only that, I've engraved you into the palm of my hand. There's something permanent that I have done. When you come into covenant relationship with me, I will never forget you. You are on my hand, this powerful hand that rescues, this powerful hand in Isaiah 40 that says holds the depths of the ocean in his hand. And you know that your name is in his hand. He won't ever leave you. He won't ever forsake you. He is always with you. 
even in the midst of your circumstances. He's always with you. We just need to be reminded of that. And Isaiah goes on in the verses that continue through the rest of the chapter to say that God is going to restore his people, even in the midst of their circumstances that seem like there, there's no hope to be found, even in their circumstances. He uses this illustration of being barren, like I'm never going to have kids again. And then all of a sudden they have kids. And who provides those kids? It's actually God is the one that is rescuing and providing for you, even in the midst of your dark circumstances that you don't feel like you have hope in. And then verse 23, he says, then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Do you feel like God has left you? Do you feel like you're confused at your circumstances? Do you feel like this doesn't make any sense in your life? And if God is good, why is he letting this happen to me? Keep waiting. Keep trusting. Keep believing by faith that God is a God that's good. He has not forgotten you. And those that wait for him will not be put to shame. He continues on in the end of the chapter, verse 26. He says, I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as wine. Then all flesh will know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Welcome, kids, to Family Sunday. <laughs> Eat your own flesh and drunk with your own blood. Okay, what, what, what's happening here is the idea of God's people feel forsaken, they feel left, and they're going, okay, like, even in the midst of your circumstances, if you have uh, people that are coming against you and you're going, okay, it doesn't feel like God is here, I better step into the situation and I better figure it out. I better take care of my enemies because God doesn't seem to be taking care of my enemies for me. God's going, stop. I will take care of them. I'm going to do something to them. And he's talking specifically to the Babylonians. I'm going to do something to them that you don't even have to lift a finger. They will self-implode. That's what he's saying in that text. And again, you're going, well, that sounds good, God, but I still feel left. I'm still focusing on my negative bias of my circumstances. I'm not remembering who you are. I still feel left. And sometimes, let me suggest, which is what, where Isaiah is going to go in the next part of the text in chapter 50, sometimes we feel left because of our circumstances. And God is going to tell his people, and he tells us, listen, if you feel distant from me, it's not because I have left you, it's because you have walked away from me in your sin. And sometimes we do this practically, right? If we're walking with Jesus and following him and going like, God, you're in control. And then, oh, I forgot to study for my test. And you get an F on your test. And then all of a sudden you go, God, you left me. This doesn't make any sense. Like if you're in control, why did I fail this test? And God's going like, because you didn't study. Like, if you feel distant from me, if you feel disconnected from me, let me suggest to you, this is what the prophet's going to do in a minute, let me suggest to you, it's because you have walked away from being close to me. I haven't walked away from you. Listen to the language he used in verse 1 of chapter 50. It says, thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors to whom I have sold you? Behold, your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. 
Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no answer? My, is my hand shortened that I cannot redeem? Or I have no power to deliver? Behold, my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. The fish stink for their lack of water and thirst and die. I close the heavens with blackness and make the sackcloth their covering. In this context in verse 1, he's saying, listen, in this culture, in this context, when the husband wanted to divorce his wife, he would send divorce papers that would say, I am no longer with this woman. It is clear legally, no longer is she my wife. And God is going like, listen, if I left you, where is their certificate of divorce? It's nowhere to be found. Because I didn't leave you. I didn't put those papers through. I haven't left you. The reason you're feeling distant from me is because of your iniquities, the end of verse 1, because of your transgressions. You have chosen not to wait for me, not to have me be your vengeance, but you have chosen your own way. And as choosing your own way, as you follow these idols, you feel distant from me. But I haven't left you. And isn't that true for us? Man, when we get tired and impatient of waiting for God's timing, and we go, well, I'm just going to have to figure this out on my own because God has left me. Here's what I'm going to do. And you take matters into your own hands instead of trusting by God and his timing and by faith. And you go, ah, and you try these things and it doesn't end up working out. And then you feel even worse. And God's going, well, I don't want you to do that. And even in this text, he's going, because some of us would go, man, we've blown it beyond repair. With God, our decisions as we chase those idols for life, man, we have messed it up and there's no hope for me. And God is saying, even though you feel distant from me because of your own sin, I still will rescue you. Is my arm not long enough? Can I not rescue you? I make the waters into dry land. I speak and things happen. And some of us in our circumstances, especially the ones that have been praying over time and time and time, God, give me this, give me this, give me this. And it doesn't happen. We start to lose faith. We feel like God has forgotten us. And God could answer it like this. Is God too small to bring you a spouse if you're single and you're so tired of being single? Can God do that? Hey, God can do that. He can do that no problem. Can God provide the things you need to provide and you're frustrated because it's not happening, it's not happening, it's okay, well, I'm gonna have to step out on my own and do it on my own because God's left me, he's forgotten me. No, God can do that. And what Isaiah is saying here is, man, you might feel distant from me that I've forgotten you or that I've left you. That's because of your own sin. That's not because I've left you. Be reminded, be reminded that I am right here. And turn, turn from your ways. And then he goes on in verse 4, as again, the narrative shifts where we start to hear from the servant in first person again. This is the, the, the third servant song. We saw it in chapter 42, just now in 49, and then in 50. And uh, verses 4 through 9, the servant begins to speak again because he's reminding them, you don't only need rescue from your circumstances, you need rescue from your heart. And I'm going to bring this servant to give you the ultimate rescue. Verse 4 says, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain a word with him who is weary. 
Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear that I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near, who will contend with me. Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Whom will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Those of you that know Jesus, do you hear Jesus in these, in these words as the servant speaks about himself? Like verse 4, do you hear? He says, I may know how to sustain a word with him who is weary. And what does the Messiah say in, in Matthew chapter 11? Man, are you tired? Are you weary? Come to me. Take my yoke upon yourself. My burden is light. Right? And he says, you will have rest for what? Your souls. This is what Jesus comes to do. Doesn't mean you always have rest from your circumstances. I was talking to my wife this week, man, it's been a crazy week, and I'm just going like, I was thinking about that verse as I was driving away one morning and going like, Christ promised to, to bring my burdens to him, and as I uh, give them to him, it's going to be easy, it's going to be light. And I was like, that's just not true. You walk with Jesus, and it gets worse. It gets harder. You have harder conversations. I feel like this burden is massive. And then he goes, no, 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 no. You will get rest, not from your circumstances, but for your soul. And man, when I go to Jesus, my Savior, my servant king, and I go, God, you, I, I, don't, I, I want you to change the circumstances, but regardless of the circumstances, I have rest for my soul. And who God has made me, who he's made you, he gives you comfort that you can't find anywhere else. And that's the promise in Verse 4, as you continue to see the language that those of you that are familiar with Jesus and his way to the cross, verse 6, I've made back for those who strike my cheeks, for those who pull out my beard. I have not hid my face from disgrace and spitting. And as Jesus walks that bloody step-by-step step towards the cross, what happens? He gets his beard pulled. He gets spit on. He gets disgraced. The servant is saying, this is the road to redemption. This is how I will rescue you. He say, he who, who vindicates me is near, verse 8. Who will contend with me? Let him stand together. Who is my adversary? Jesus takes on the adversary of sin and death and destruction. What does he say? He says, let them come near to me. Let them come near to me. God is with me. He is going to rescue me. And he's going to rescue you through me. And again, for us, some of us, man, we just feel like the Lord has just forgotten us. We feel like verse 14 of, of chapter 49, like the Lord's forsaken us. He's left us. He's forgotten us because of our circumstances. And what does Jesus say on the cross? Man, one of his last words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do we get this? Do we understand this? The reason that God does not forsake his people, the reason he doesn't forsake me is because he forsakes Jesus, his own son on the cross. 
And there's an exchange that happens all of a sudden uh, when you bow your knee to Jesus and you accept him in your life and he changes you from the inside out. There's a guarantee he will never leave you. He will never forsake you because he is forsaked and he has poured out his wrath on his son on the cross. We can be sure that he'll never leave us. and He'll never forsake us because of what he's done to Jesus. And that's the beautiful exchange in the gospel. Right, the great exchange of the gospel that God pours out his wrath on Jesus. He leaves him so that if you're in Jesus, you'll never be left. The great exchange of the gospel is that God pours out the wrath of Jesus uh, and forgets him. So if you're in Jesus, you'll never be forgotten. But instead, what does the Father forget? He forgets your sins as far as the east is from the west. What great hope for us that feel left and forgotten. And we go, that's not true. If you're in Jesus, that's not true. It was true of Jesus because of that exchange, but it's not true of us. And as we close, the narrator in verses 10 and 11, it shifts again. The servant is not speaking in first person now. Now the narrator comes back in, and in verses 10 and 11, it says, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who talks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, All of you who kindle the fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand, that you shall lie down in torment. What is the narrator challenging us to do in the midst of what the servant will do for us? Again, verse 10, he's going like, listen. You who walk in darkness, you have no light. You're confused by your circumstances. It's dark. You don't understand. Keep trusting me by faith. Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Verse 11, he goes, listen, if if you want to stop trusting and you want to create your own fire and you want to walk by the light of your own torch, do you know what's going to happen to you? It will not work out well for you. Right? He says that in the very end. This uh, you have for my hand, you shall lie down in torment. And so my challenge to us this morning is if we feel dark, if we feel lonely, if we feel confused by our circumstances, don't forget God hasn't left you. He loves you. Trust him today. Don't trust in your own way, which again, so many of us begin to do. We get tired, we get impatient of waiting for God, and we're just like, And we light our own torch and we try to walk in light of our own light and it will burn out and it will fail and we will not be who God wants us to be. Let's trust him this morning. And if you look down at your Bible in chapter 51, we're not going to have time, but verses 1 through 8, you'll see this repetitive theme. As you trust me, you don't walk in your own ways and you trust my servant to forgive and care and rescue you. I want you to do these things. I want you to look and I want you to listen. I want you to listen and I want you to look. I want you to look and listen, look and listen, look and listen. And remember, don't have the negative bias of like, well, God's clearly not. Like, would you remember the good things God's done for you? And as we respond this morning, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to look and listen. Even as we sing even as we come to the table this morning, where this is a tangible way for us to look and listen to what God has done in his son for us. That as we take a piece of bread which represents his body, we remember God hasn't left me. 
and we dip it in the juice, we remember that we're free of shame, we're free of guilt because of the blood shed for our sins in that exchange, and we remember the truth of God even in the midst of our darkness and our circumstances that don't make sense. Man, we need to be reminded of that every single week, which is why we take communion every single week, because we're going to walk out of this room and we're going to forget it. And we need each other to be reminded of that. Let's pray and ask God to do it in and through us this morning. Father, would you speak to us? Even in our response this morning, would you guide us? For those of us that are feeling weary, God, would you give us a word from your spirit? God, would we be reminded as we take a piece of bread and we dip it in the juice and we put it in our mouth, would we be reminded of your goodness and that one day you're gonna make everything right? Help us not walk in the power of our own light, in the power of our own spirit, but help us trust your spirit for your timing and be reminded that you love us, you will never leave us, and you will never forsake us. We ask that you would do it in and through us this morning. We pray it in your name. Amen.